Starry Voices. Demystifying Zero Trust is a podcast created by Istari, a global cybersecurity platform. At Istari, our mission is to help create a digitally resilient future for the businesses we work with. This podcast series explores the strategy of Zero Trust as a way to help build cyber resilience. In this episode, we're speaking with Scott Conrad of Hub International and Dale Gonzalez of Axio about the value of cyber risk quantification and cyber insurance for measuring and protecting organizations against cyber risk. Thank you very much, gentlemen, for joining us today. Really appreciate your time. I'm going to pass this over to you, Scott, and I want you to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at Hub. Sure. Hello, Don, and hello, all of our listeners. I am Scott Conrad. I lead an industry specialty practice throughout North America for Hub International. We're the world's largest privately owned insurance brokerage and risk advisory firm, and we work across the areas of risk management, insurance, employee benefits, and human capital consulting, as well as retirement and asset management. In broad strokes, we're about a $4 billion firm with about 17,000 people in some 600 offices and then reach into over 100 countries. So my particular focus with Hub is on serving nonprofit organizations, which, as we view that world, does not include healthcare providers or educational institutions. Although a lot of them are tax-exempt, we serve them through separate verticals, one for each segment. So our nonprofit book, as we look at it, arts and cultural, human services, religious, foundations, international aid, relief and development, associations, all those kinds of folks amount to over 21,000 buyers that are generating upwards of $2 billion, with a B, dollars in annual premiums. So it's anything but a hobby for us. That's awesome. And you have a very unique perspective, especially considering recent breaches that have happened in the nonprofit sector as well. Oh, yeah. Dale, I've spoke, uh, spoken to many folks with their hair on fire when they call me. Absolutely. Dale, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Dale Gonzalez. I'm the chief product officer for Axio. Axio was founded about eight years ago with this idea that that companies could do a better job managing the risk that they face in, in the cyber world if they understood their current practices and how those practices compare to their peers, as well as the overall risk that they were running in dollar terms, so putting an actual financial value on it. The interesting thing about the company is its founders, one person actually came from Aon, where he ran their cyber book, and the other came from Carnegie Mellon, where he helped to develop the cybersecurity maturity model that was then put into practice by the Department of Energy. I was brought on to build the platform that supported that activity. The foundational idea, though, was that insurance needed to be a component of the way that all enterprises evaluate and manage the risk that they're running, that it's not just about the application of relevant controls, but that at some point you reach a point of diminishing control return and you have to then look at transfer vehicles. My focus shifted late last year from the enterprises and helping enterprises understand that the risk they're running to the insurance ecosystem. So helping these enterprises describe themselves more effectively to brokers and insurers so that they can get better insurance outcomes, but also helping insurers and brokers analyze companies more effectively and understand the, the risk that they're running. That's great. And Scott, considering your unique position, having been selling policies for quite some time into the marketplace, what are some key buyer misconceptions about cyber risk? And 
Why should organizations, especially nonprofit organizations, even consider buying it? I've been involved with the cyber line since its pioneer days, probably 20 years or so ago. I've been in the business for 45 years. But back at that time, the biggest resistance that I encountered tended to be from CIOs, chief information officers, who took it, I think, as a personal affront that we'd suggest exploring cyber insurance. They would tell me pretty smugly and with an element of arrogance that they were invincible. Uh, I think those times have changed with the headlines, and now CIOs are our friends. They see cyber insurance as a tool to save their bacon, quite frankly. In, in my particular world, you know, the number of excuses really is all over the map, but a lot of nonprofits will tell me uh, that they don't think they're big enough, or they don't have enough interesting information to be targets. Or they'll say that they don't have any juicy information because they use external credit card processors or CRM providers to store their donor data in the cloud, these kind of things. Sometimes they'll still tell me that they have airtight defenses or they think that their donors love them so much that they would never sue them over a data breach. I tend to look at this more commonsensically. If Fortune 100 companies, and we can name them here, I'm not going to trash anybody's reputation, but we know who they are. If Fortune 100 companies with legions of IT staffers and huge budgets can be victimized, then it would follow that smaller resource-strapped nonprofits that don't even have full-time IT leaders are probably vulnerable as well. Contracting IT functions out the back door doesn't absolve the business of risk. It really all hinges on the contractual terms in those situations, and they tend to be pretty one-sided against the buyer. So these are the kinds of things I'm encountering. Nonprofits as a group, and I hope I'm not overgeneralizing, have tended to be slow adopters, but with the headlines proliferating, most of them have gotten a wake-up call, and now they realize this is really one of the core types of insurance that they need to have. Yeah, you made an interesting point there around outsourcing, whether or not it's SaaS platforms, software as a service, or IT services. That actually, in my opinion, puts an organization more at risk for breach because now you've got more people that are outside of your control touching and accessing critical customer data, whether or not it is somebody's credit card information that's being managed by a processor or somebody's home address because you're sending out mailers and requests for donations, or in the event of, in some cases, actual personally identifiable tax information that is used for high-end donors and just and people who donate to the organization or work for the organization, either through partnership or directly, it puts all that information at risk. Absolutely. And to take it a step further, what most folks don't realize is that The owner of the data, the organization who is consigning that data to the technology provider behind the curtain, the owner of the data is the one who's going to be in the soup if something goes awry. You can send that data off to whoever you want as a credit card processor, a SaaS provider, pick your flavor. And just because you've done that doesn't absolve you of the problem. If something goes wrong on their end, you're the one that's still going to be on the hot seat with attorneys general and other parties. So, We pay a lot of attention to the contractual risk transfer piece of it. If you're going to engage somebody as a tech provider 
outside, that's fine. A lot of folks are doing it nowadays, but you want to make sure that provider is going to stand behind its work product. If they screw up and there's a breach on their end or some other mishap, that they're going to stand behind their work and they will indemnify and hold harmless the buyer that engaged their services. And the corollary to that then is that they need to have the right kinds and amounts of insurance to do the job. Otherwise, you're depending on their creditworthiness and the health of their treasury. Absolutely. Dale, from your point of view, how does Axio help really clear up those misconceptions about risk ownership and risk worthiness and risk cost for any organization, whether or not it's a nonprofit or otherwise? Yeah, I think the first place, if you want to start to evaluate the problem, is to understand what is really driving the risk inside your organization. And in fact, Scott brought up an interesting point that companies will often say, the data that I have isn't particularly interesting. And that is foundationed on the idea that the data theft is the only thing that someone could credibly be attempting to do to you. And the fact of the matter is, that's not true at all. If your processes are useful to you, if you use computers to perform any function whatsoever, then a bad guy has an, a vested interest in depriving you of those processes, preventing you from being able to execute them so that they can hold you hostage to a ransomware demand. If you've got machines connected to things, they can try to make those machines blow up. If you've got building control systems that need elevators, they can try to freeze those elevators. So the first place to go is to evaluate the use, not just of data inside your organization and the value of that data, but in fact, the use of machines that are computers that support your business activity and the value of those computers that support that business activity. And there, when you start to itemize all of those things, do you get to the a general idea of not only how much you're at risk, but what is the family of policies that would be necessary to protect you? Because also, as Scott referenced, this cyber peril doesn't just live in the cyber policy necessarily. It can have implications for your property policies and your directors and officers policies and all of the rest of them. So the second step, after you've gotten a reasonable comprehensive list of the expenses that you're likely to incur in the event that you have a cyber mishap is to then evaluate the family of your entire family of policies and assess how they would respond in the event that the thing that happened to you that was bad was a result of a cyber attack as opposed to an act of God or some other thing. Scott here, I'm going to jump in and just add to that that the cyber product has evolved as a standalone offering because we've seen that no other policy really does the job completely. If you look to a property insurance policy, the property policy in very basic terms is going to cover direct physical loss or damage to covered property, whatever the insurer defines as the subject of that insurance. But go back to the notion of direct physical loss or damage. Is data breach or, or some kind of compromise, is that direct physical loss or damage? A lot of insurers have said that it's not. If you look to other policies, they've got holes in them as well. And then insurance companies can't cover every imaginable contingency. So they're going to give you coverage and they're going to take it away. But if you scrub through every other type of policy, you'll find that there are smidgens of coverage here or there, but nothing that really holistically does the job. Hence the evolution of this product. And as, as we advance further, 
underwriters, now that the horse is out of the barn, have retroactively closed the doors by strapping another new exclusion. So we find that the mainstream insurances, and I'm going to add directors and officers liability, management liability into the mix, those types of protection are becoming narrower as respects cyber-related perils. The, the industry is really forcing the buyer to go look at a standalone dedicated solution. Yeah, you both made very interesting comments there. Dale, you about the the operational side of things, and Scott, you around the physical damage. If you think about the situation, for example, around ransomware, and a nonprofit organization's sole source of income is oftentimes its donor flow. In the event of a ransomware attack, the entire organization could be shut down. Nothing is technically stolen. You may not even choose to pay the ransom, but the flow of income to the nonprofit has ceased. And that is a business interruption from a purely traditional business point of view and technical point of view that is oftentimes, to your point, Scott, not covered by any traditional insurance policy, but is covered under cyber policies. Absolutely. And some of your listeners may be familiar with an event that happens in November of every year. It's, I don't know when it started, five, 10 years ago, but called Giving Tuesday. It's a day when philanthropy comes together and all nonprofits make a big deal out of that's their day to, to, to make money from their donor base. Imagine if now you have a distributed denial of service attack and it happens on Donor Tuesday and your ability to collect revenues basically is kaput. That would be a problem for some organizations. And it's not to say that they make all their money on Donor Tuesday or Giving Tuesday. It's, that's not the case, but it would be a problem for sure. And I think yeah, I'll just I clarify, Don, when you say the trickiest part of insurance as applied to this problem is that you almost never can say the word will. You always have to say the word could. So your cyber policy could cover business interruption, but it might not because it might have specific exclusions for business interruption. Likewise, your property policy could cover business interruption and other damages that result from a cyber predicated attack, but they might not because they exclude it. And this is part of the reason why you have to evaluate the family of covers that you have holistically, and you have to know what's actually driving your risk in dollar terms so that you can get those trued up appropriately so that you have limits that make sense. Because the other, quite frankly, the, the other condition, I won't quite say that it's a problem, but the other condition is oftentimes the limits in the cyber policy are far lower than limits in other policies that you might have. So it's really important that you that an enterprise sort of a acknowledge that they that transfer is an appropriate way to handle all risks and cyber is one of them that they know where those dollar values are coming from where the, what's actually driving the risk and then they get somebody to help them evaluate their family of policies so they can make the right changes. And the corollary to that is to somehow quantify the risk, and maybe we'll be getting into this discussion, but how high is up? A lot of folks have no concept of how much to buy, and I am a, a skeptic when it comes to benchmarking. Benchmarking is the idea of seeing what's the other guy doing? What are other people like me doing? The problem with benchmarking is, first of all, it, it all revolves around the notion of what makes for a comparable entity, a comparable business that you're going to measure yourself against. That can be pretty subjective in and of itself. But secondly, even if you've identified reliably the comparable businesses against whom we want to benchmark, 
just because they've done something doesn't make it the right solution for you. Benchmarking, I think, is only half useful. I think the better bet is if you can access enough data, and we do this kind of stuff all the time, but access data that enables you to to quantify the level of risk. What would 100-year time span, 250-year time span, 500,000-year time span, to be able to predict with a high degree of credibility, 95%, let's say, what your maximum potential loss exposure would be. Once you know that, now you can do an intelligent shopping expedition. Yeah, the old adage of if your friend jumped off a bridge, would you jump up, jump off exactly. a bridge is not applicable here. Every organization really needs to assess their own risk, which is, in my opinion, why the whole concept of cyber risk quantification is important. Dale, why don't you talk to us a little bit about CRQ and why Axio believes it's important and how Axio approaches CRQ differently than other techniques like FAIR and what FAIR is as well. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start from the obvious place, which is that the language of business is dollars, right? And so all conversations in business, whether they are directly doing it or not, are foundationed on this idea of money coming in and money going out. And if you exempt a part of the business from participating in that conversation, then you put it in a position where it's difficult to make decisions about it. So for a long time, the cyber program has been treated as if it were a holistic or universal good. We should be as secure as we can be. We should spare no expense available to us to batten down the hatches. There is no such thing as diminishing return. And in fact, that's just, it's A, not true about business in any other form, and it's really not true about cyber either. So if you want to talk about cyber and measure it the same way that all other aspects of the business are measured, then you have to measure it in dollars, which means that you have to quantify it in a way that generates dollars as an output. As a consequence of that, you also help get to what Scott was pointing at, which is the how high is high. How much money is necessary? To How much risk transfer are you attempting to accomplish? And the answer is a lot easier if you know what risks you're running in dollar terms than it is if all you have is a qualitative measure of we feel like this is a severity five risk with a severe with a likelihood of three on a scale of one to five. That type of traditional measurement makes it difficult to make decisions like how much insurance should we buy or is this brand new piece of technology worth it giving everything else we're doing or is this decision not to pursue a particular change in our business because we're concerned about the cyber risk it introduces worth it. So it's a lot easier if you can say, hey, listen, if we're willing to let everyone work from home, we feel like that's a billion new dollars to the company, although it adds $100 million of risk, than it is to just go, does it increase our risk? Yes, it does. So in order to do it, though, you have to have a mechanism which allows you to do enough analysis that you actually can start making decisions, but not so much that the date for the decision has long since passed before you get to the answer. Do it in a transparent way such that it, it supports the questioning of all of the interesting interested parties. We had we worked with a CISO and we were talking about cyber risk quantification and he said, hey, listen, I would really love to do this, but I have to tell you the last time I tried it, I walked into my CFO's office and said, okay, I think our cyber risk is $1.273 million a, a year. And the CFO said, wait, 1.273, not 1.28, not one even. Where did that number come from? And at that point, the CISO was like, that 
that was what the tool told me. And that ended his desire to have conversations like that again. So you Mm. need to be in a position where everyone can participate in the analysis, understand where the numbers came from, achieve consensus on whether they are or are not representative of the risk that's actually being run. This has to be done in a timely way. So it has to be in time to make the decisions and only at a level of detail necessary to make that set of decisions. And then the last bit is that it has to be the impacts themselves have to be sufficiently granularly defined that you can credibly identify appropriate responses to them. So if I just told you your cyber risk is $100 million a year, it would be unclear how you should credibly respond. Should you try to buy a comprehensive cyber policy? Okay, what exclusions can you afford and what can you not afford? I don't know because I just know it's $100 million. Should you institute some new technology or implement zero trust? I don't know because I don't know where you said those losses were coming from. So again, it has to be fast enough, transparent, and sufficiently granular. And if you think of those things as the fundamental requirements, that's why we chose the the way that we go about doing it. That's why we picked our way to do it. And that's what makes it distinct. It's not the only game in town. There are other ways to do risk analysis that uh, have other sets of trade-offs, but we believe for the purposes that we're putting it to, that our way of doing it is the best set of compromises to achieve those three objectives. Yeah, and you talked about transparency and granularity. Talk a little bit about defensibility, because much of what comes out of your platform is actual tangible or or tactical recommendations for an organization to reduce risk. And that's based on historical information. It's based on best practices, correct? It's based yeah. on it's based on actual scenarios that other organizations have been through. Exactly right. So here is one of the tricky things about cyber as a discipline as it relates to quantification. It is not the case that we have a hundred years of loss history where like we do in some other domains where we can say, generally speaking, this is how fires act in buildings. And therefore we can use it as the foundation for how we would imagine fires acting in our own business. Like most folks, thankfully, have not had catastrophic cyber events occur to, the, occur to their companies that have put them in horrible positions, but that would serve as examples of how these risks get run. Few companies have, but not all have. And so the way to get at the question, what could this mean to me, requires that you do something slightly differently than just evaluating historical information. You actually have to take it apart a line item at a time. So while it's the case that no one's, very few people have had these catastrophic cyber events happen to them, many people have have had business interruption happen to them. And so now it's just a question of making reasonable extrapolations from, if you've had your business interrupted, how would it be worse or different in the event that it was cyber that did it? Many of them have had fines and penalties that they've had to be that they've had to pay. And so again, you can extrapolate from that. People have had brand sponsors that created reputational damage. And so now it's just a question of imagining how does that reputational damage change or is extended in the event that you're talking about cyber as the predicate. So this activity of piecing together these black swans a feather at a time is exactly where something like our platform can help. And if you combine it with us crawling through the historical data and us 
looking at all the sources of threat reports and us evaluating the way that ransomware demands are changing and baking that into the platform. That's where you get something that produces transparent results that everyone can look at and go, okay, I understand where that number came from and I understand how it does or does not apply to me as a business. Scott, what are your thoughts on the way that Axio approaches it versus the more traditional, I've got a risk, I've got so many database records, and I know Ponemon says that their risk is this much per that traditional back-of-the-napkin Excel calculation approach. Going again back into the sort of the early days of cyber, I think everybody looked at the Ponemon report and they said, oh, here's your value per compromised record, the hard value, and then their soft costs. And collectively, that, that makes up the composite value per record. How many records do we have? You do need to dissect it a little bit further because not all records are the same. Some need to be safeguarded in a different way than others. Records that are that somebody keeps that are mad because public information no big deal. If it's health information, that that's a different case and you've got different types of data. But I think most of the insurance companies, the big insurers who have been the ones who have been at this for a while and that have big legacy books of business will tend to underwrite for exposures that they've seen in their claims experience. They do root cause analyses of their losses and then they screen their applicants for people and process and technology vulnerabilities that over time have been problematic for that insurer or insurers. The underwriting applications themselves have been become exquisitely detailed and a lot of underwriters complement those applications with discrete network scans so that they can identify open ports and other vulnerabilities. And I'll be the first to tell you, I'm not a technologist, but it strikes me that cyber risk quantification can be useful to really any insurer, but especially to the newer market entries that may not have decades of experience under their belts. It's a fiercely competitive marketplace, and these companies are all trying to grab for market share, but they need to write their business more profitably. So how can they do that? It seems to me that this is just another tool that they have to sharpen their results, maybe. Dale, how have you seen organizational differences, architectural differences, et cetera, affect the risk level for an organization and ultimately affect their cyber insurance costs? From the standpoint of the underwriting activity, as Scott alluded to, oftentimes what the thing that an underwriter is reacting to are the things that happened or drove large losses last year. And it is, in fact, very much a moving target. So you'll see that, oh, it turns out that a lot of people were compromised because VDI ports were open. So this year, I'm going to ask very specific questions about the use of VDI ports. Or last year, privileged accounts was a dominant place where impacts occurred. And so I'm going to ask about privileged accounts and how you manage it. I think generally speaking, though, the things that you can do are A, Know about yourself. The more you're capable of telling the insurer that seems credible about your existing practices, why they are what they are, why they're sufficient or commensurate with the risk that you're running, the more that you know about the degree to which technology contributes to your business processes and your and the things that you have, the more likely it is that the insurer is going to say, okay, I feel like talking to you helps me understand you. 
Just to jump in, and I hate to interrupt, but you're really hitting on a nerve here. That It's a point that I would have made. I, the problem with the underwriting process, they use these applications that are a lot of Again, excruciatingly detailed questions. The average CFO isn't in a position to fill out the questionnaire. He's going to turn it over to a CIO or a CISO or somebody, a technologist, to do it. But the questions, a lot of them are yes or no. Do you do this? Yes or no. Do you do that? Yes or no. They're fishing for binary answers, and not everything boils down to a yes or no, black or white. So a lot of the time, we're working in gray areas here. A lot of times, I will encourage a client if the question really doesn't do a proper job of capturing the accurate answer, feel free to append an addendum, cross-reference back to the question, but explain it. And then after that, once the application is sitting with the underwriter a couple of days, maybe we'll get a conference call together and talk through it. Because at the end of the day, our job as an intermediary, as a broker, is to promote contract certainty. We want all the parties who are going into the deal to feel comfortable with it. The buyer should know exactly what insurance he's getting and at what price. And the insurer ought to know exactly what kind of a risk it's pricing for, for good or bad. And I find so many times a, a conference call to talk things through is where we get to that comfort level and then everybody's happy. So I think, again, the, the important point is you really need to know about yourself as a company and you need to know the degree to which you do depend on technology. I think that if you tell an insurer that you don't think that cyber is particularly meaningful to you because you don't have databases or you don't process credit cards because you outsource it, they are going to treat that as, I don't know how I can believe in you if you don't have enough to tell me. I also think it's important that you you have an opportunity to tell them more than they've asked. So you don't have to let a yes go at yes. And likewise, you don't have to let a no go at no. You can let a yes go at, hey, listen, not only do we do this, we do these other things that we consider to be even better than just the de minimis value here. And here is why we think that this is an important part of our overall cyber posture. And likewise, you can say, hey, listen, we don't do this, but this is why it doesn't apply. And here's a set of compensating controls that we've adopted. And here is the reason that we've chosen to do things as the way that we've chosen to do it. And again, if you have a set of answers that is credibly validated and backed up by the, what you can demonstrate about your company and represents a, a thoughtful approach to the problem, then that's going to put you in a position where most insurers are going to say, okay, I feel better about this. I understand it more. And to the degree that you can demonstrate for the insurer, this is how we've modeled our losses. This is where we expect them to be. This is why we expect it to be there. You're giving them insight that they may not otherwise have. They may, the insurer might be going off of industry models that are not specific to a particular client and as a result aren't characteristic of that client's risk. And so they may be treating all clients as if they were the same. There was absolutely a time when insurers reacted as if every hospital was absolutely identical as it related to cyber risk. And if that if those hospitals weren't in a position to demonstrate their unique experience, they were going to get a reasonably unfavorable result some of our clients put in front of insurers output from our platform to demonstrate the way that they were evaluating and treating the problem, and they got quite favorable results. You bring up an interesting point there about an organization knowing about themselves. In my years of consulting and architecture and governance and working with clients, 
visibility, understanding the organization's architecture, and understanding how the business functions from an IT point of view, as well as from a business point of view, is one of the weakest things that most organizations struggle with, or I should say, they are the weakest in those areas. And that puts an organization at higher risk for all sorts of things, for technology failure, for cyber risk, for natural disaster, just resiliency in general. What are some of the biggest mistakes, Scott, that you've seen organizations make that really affects their resiliency, their insurability, the overall impact of what a cyber policy could do? Again, I really don't want to sound like I'm indicting the nonprofit sector at large because I'm not. I love working in this space. The people are terrific. These organizations are doing such good work, but they're resource challenged. A lot of nonprofits are struggling just to make their budget come out even. They're very lean on their resources. They tend to be slow in terms of embracing new technology solutions. I think a lot of folks really don't even have their act together in terms of basic business continuity. We're talking here about a very specific area of the business, but I would really question whether most nonprofits have any kind of an organization resiliency plan. Do they have a a plan in place if the stuff hit the fan, not just a cyber risk, it could be an abuse and molestation claim, it could be a catastrophic auto situation, it could be a board governance failure, it could be an embezzlement. When that kind of stuff hits the news, do they have a plan in place of who's going to deal with the media? What are they going to say? How are they going to handle the incident? Right down to the basics of a fire situation, the human services organizations that are highly regulated by their communities or states, they have to have disaster evacuation plans for developmentally disabled people and stuff like that. But getting into the mainstream of the nonprofit sector, I just, I think that's the biggest shortcoming is just a failure to recognize the threats and really to proactively mitigate the risk. It's an endemic problem that I encounter. I think that's systemic across all businesses, understaffed, challenging the norms of what is and isn't the appropriate amount of staff and the appropriate amount of technology to be in the environment to manage risk. And I think that's where CRQ really helps an organization understand their risks and how to manage those risks internally from both a staffing and a dollar's point of view. Yeah, I think there are a couple of things, right? It is certainly the case that I cannot think of an organization that I've worked for or with in my entire life that when asked the question, do you feel like you have enough staff to do the things that are being asked of you, said, oh, yeah, absolutely. Like everyone all the time feels like they're a one-armed paper hanger. And that's certainly true in the case of cybersecurity and IT. And a part of it, frankly, is as a direct result of folks not knowing the magnitude of the ask, like how this ball of systems that keeps growing and growing requires caring and feeding. And likewise, they don't necessarily recognize the contribution that this group makes to the overall running of the business because they haven't put a dollar value on it. I think in some cases, this is a result of the idea that sometimes companies want to start at the bottom and try to build up. So they look asset by asset and they try to imagine the what it is that these assets are individually contributing to the overall business. I think that 
starting from the ground, trying to work up to the trees is a very difficult way to approach the problem. I think, frankly speaking, if you just think about it, companies have far fewer lines of business that they're in than they have assets supporting those lines of business. So starting from the top and thinking, what is it that we do? And then going down and saying, okay, what is what are the pieces of technology that dominantly contribute, that top of mind contribute to those things that we do provides a much more fruitful path of analysis. I think, frankly, if you ask a technologist to, hey, give me an inventory of cyber assets and tell me what they mean to the company, they're going to do what they're comfortable with, which is to start at the thing they know, which is the computer. And they're going to try to work up from there. I think instead they need to turn it upside down and start thinking, what businesses are we in and how do we use tech to get those businesses cared for and established? And from that analysis, they will be able to start to evaluate, hey, do we have the right staff? Do we have them in the right places? Are we having, do we have the right tech? And frankly, more importantly, not only will it help them identify things that they need to start doing, but it will help them support the idea that there are things that they can stop doing. And it's by the stopping that you recover at resources, including people, to start doing the things that you wish you were doing. Up to now, though, it's very challenging to stop doing anything if you really don't understand what that means in terms of new risk that you're running. You take those nutrition supplements every morning because what the heck, it hasn't killed you yet. You don't want to risk getting unhealthy because you stop doing it. Whereas if you had a real understanding that, in fact, that nutrition supplement's no longer helping you because you've started eating well, then you could credibly drop that supplement and move on with your life. And it's that analysis that I think is missing and a necessary part of all of this. Yeah, Scott, you brought up the concept of business continuity, and that's one of the things that I see as a big disconnect in most organizations is considering cyber risk part of business continuity and enterprise risk management. Yeah, enterprise risk management, for those who aren't familiar with it, is the discipline of looking at the entirety of an organization's risk landscape from stem to stern. We in the insurance business tend to obsess over the things that can be solved through insurance. So your run-of-the-mill hazard risk, property damage, vehicle damage, workplace accidents, things like that. We look at operational risks. But I don't have a silver bullet for financial risks. If the global economy tanks, what does that mean for a particular nonprofit or for the, for even for the sector at large? If an organization's entire C-suite decides to take a hike and they haven't done any succession planning, I don't have a silver bullet for that. Enterprise risk management is this holistic process of looking at the entire organization. I've got to believe for most organizations, information is central to their ability to function successfully. So if all of a sudden your information management capability is compromised, technology goes kaput, it's going to leave you in a bad place. You think about manufacturers that depend on technology for supply chain and things like that. That's even a whole different situation. But if we were doing an inventory of an organization's enterprise-wide risks, as I did not long ago, a, a large nationwide nonprofit that they operate in the supportive housing arena. They don't own housing projects or manage housing projects. They do lending for supportive housing initiatives of working with municipalities and other stakeholders to advance supportive housing. When we chased through, geez, I forget how many risks there were. I think we flushed out 50, 60 different risks in a multidisciplinary discussion with key stakeholders from around the organization. When we finally called it down 
by consensus to a small group of five risks. This particular organization had cyber as their number one risk. Out of an enterprise-wide collection, cyber emerged as their top risks. It wasn't that we as insurance people were trying to hawk them insurance. They have cyber insurance, but this was an organic process. The answer bubbled up from within. So it definitely is part of the ERM picture. Absolutely. And Dale, how does the platform help organizations really prioritize cyber risk in the broader sense of enterprise risk management? Yeah, I think the key with all of this, and this will be a recurring theme, so maybe that's a good thing, or maybe people will get tired of hearing me say it. The way that you ought to be prioritizing things within the context of a business is in terms of their economic impact both to the positive or to the negative. The way to know that a given risk is in fact more existential than another given risk is by evaluating the comprehensive economic impact on the company should that risk be realized. If you know that an increase in fuel costs is likely to reduce your gross margin by 17%, and so you're highly sensitive to increasing fuel costs, and you also know that cyber risk is a five, it's very difficult to make any sort of comparative judgment. And typically companies will end up managing in dollars those things that have been expressed in dollars and just allocating some fixed percentage of budget to those things that have been expressed in units other than dollars. So at the point at which you understand, hey, listen, a successful cyber attack would cause this economic outcome to our company. It would cause this loss of customers or loss of new opportunities. It would do this in terms of business interruption. It would cause this in terms of fines and penalties. It would cost this in terms of direct costs. Then you can sum those costs up and compare them with something else. And it may be the case that for some organizations, they'll look at those costs and they'll go, you know what? It's much more important to us that we buy fuel futures so that we are covered should it be the case that fuel prices spike. Some other company may look at this and say, wow, some of these things that we were doing to hedge against certain possible outcomes seem less important now than trying to address the risk that we're running in the cyber domain. So once an organization has that kind of complete picture in what their risks are, how they should be managing it, what are the steps, Scott, they should be taking to engage somebody like Hub International? I think, first of all, the issue when it comes to insurance isn't so much an issue of whether they need insurance or why do they need it. We've talked about that at length. I think we're at a point where it's not a matter of whether a business will be breached, but when and how bad will it be? In terms of resolving it through insurance, I would suggest first that a business go to whoever it handles its normal commercial insurance and see if they can help solve the problem. You want to obviously seek competitive proposals in the marketplace. I will say, and I don't want this to sound self-serving, but it is fairly complex stuff. It's not rocket science, but it's not something that every generalist insurance agent or broker is going to be good at. And there are no two products that are built alike either. So it does require working with someone who really knows the marketplace, has the executive level insurer connections to make things happen. 
and as we've discussed earlier in the podcast, knows how to showcase the risk to the marketplace in its favorable light. Maybe that is is leveraging some CRQ information in, in the process. You need to expect that the underwriting process is going to be rigorous. You shouldn't be afraid to speak up if you feel that the insurers are missing something in their analysis. As I said earlier, not all questions on an underwriting application, you're going to boil down to binary answers. And so sometimes there is a side story to be told. But I think it's just reaching out to an organization's regular commercial insurance agent or broker and trying to get the help there. If if you don't get a strong feeling of confidence, then there's certainly specialist firms in the marketplace that, that can help with the job. The key is to find somebody who's going to be your advocate in the process and has the juice to get things done. The only thing I would add there is that the brokers, it is absolutely fair and you will find that brokers are expert in the family of policies and covers and the appropriate weaving together of those things to provide the right solution for their customers. They are not necessarily always equally versed in the business that the customers themselves are in. And it's unfair, frankly, to ask them to be. So really, it is much better for enterprises to go to the broker with a firm understanding of the way that cyber plays out in their organization than to ask the broker, what should we have to have in terms of cyber cover? I mean, yeah, I, I won't disagree with that. I will say that some of the larger firms, I mean, ourselves included, you mentioned that somebody from Aon was one of the founders of Axio. A firm like Aon, a firm like Hub, your bigger brokers will have specialties that serve certain industry segments. For example, we've got a, a healthcare practice. We've got a, a real estate practice. We've got a transportation practice. Those specialty practices like mine and nonprofit go very deep in the sector. I don't want to say that every nonprofit organization is identical to the next when it's not the case, but we do understand the big picture issues and challenges and whether they're financial or operational or governance challenges that buyers in that segment are dealing with. And we're a pretty quick study when it comes to learning about any new organization. I think that knowledge of the client's business, yes, we need to understand the specific nuances of that particular buyer. But if we understand the industry, we're going to have a pretty good idea of how cyber risk is going to tie into it. And Dale, considering that Axio is going to give an organization better visibility into their own processes, their own technology, their own risks associated with that. How is Axio going to support the organization through this cyber insurance journey, or really, more importantly, through the risk management journey as a whole? Because there are going to be lots of activities that come out of a report from Axio saying to do X, Y, Z, and that'll reduce your risk. And eventually you're going to get to a point where you say, okay, these are the risks I'm willing to address, and these are the risks I want to insure against. How is Axio going to support the organization moving forward? And there are two answers to that question. So the tool itself is designed to help companies make those sets of decisions, to understand when it makes sense to directly address and to apply a set of controls, as well as when it makes sense to evaluate and to determine whether the risk transfer mechanisms that are in place are sufficient to the task and whether they should be expanded. Likewise, it has a series of purpose-built outputs that are intended to help you describe yourself accurately to the people that need to understand you. Because again, 
folks are going to look, the insurance community is going to look historically at what things have driven claims and what things have not driven claims. And sometimes that's sufficient to describe an organization. And sometimes there are things that are unique about that organization that merit highlighting. And so having the tools necessary to make that not an onerous, painful activity, but rather a natural outcome of things that you ought to be doing to manage your program anyway, is super useful. If you don't have to answer a brand new set of questions because the platform output is sufficient to answer them, that's better than if you have to do the work all, all over. And then frankly, we have a full featured services group and partnerships within the Astari family of services folks that are designed to provide you the direct advice if that's what you're looking for. If you're looking for an outcome and not a platform, then Axio and the Astari family are prepared to provide you outcomes instead of the platform. Now we'll turn around and use the tools that we have in order to provide you the outcomes that you're looking for, but we we spoke on behalf of CISOs to the board and briefed them on the output that Axio produces. We spoke in, for our clients to their insurers and, to, and we participated on some of the engineering review calls again to help explain what was meant by the output, how it characterized the company to provide adequate answers. And we have supported our clients directly in terms of attempting to take the things that they were doing internally and the things that they knew about themselves and apply them to the application process. Because sometimes it's not clear exactly what particular things that an insurer or a broker are asking or getting at. And so if you don't understand the question, you might answer no to something that you can credibly answer yes to. And we help folks with that activity too. Awesome. And Scott, similar question to you. How does your organization support another organization that's heading down this risk reduction journey? I've said for decades that insurance is just one tool in the toolbox to deal with risk. Before you ever get to the point of just running out and buying insurance, you look for ways to avoid and reduce risk. When we're talking about cyber risk, I'm going to guess that you guys may be better experts than I am. I've got colleagues internally that I can go to talk about this. We've got strategic relationships externally who can help our clients reduce and avoid risk, whether through technology or process or people changes to the way they do business. But avoiding and reducing is one piece of it. Contractual risk management, which I alluded to early in the call, was is another piece of it. Looking at every contract brings risk. Either the buyer is taking on risk or that divesting risk. I'd like to preach that if they're engaging a service provider externally and paying good money for that service, that they ought to try and push the risk off to the technology provider. There may be some situations in which our client has to take on risk, in which case then we need to make sure that their insurance program properly accommodates that risk, that it's going to be compliant with the contract terms. And the last piece of it is risk retention. When you go out and buy a cyber policy, it's not first dollar coverage. Usually it is you're going to have some kind of a deductible or what we call a self-insured retention that comes into play first. That's the money that comes out of the buyer's wallet before you get into the insurance company's wallet. So judiciously using retentions to retain risk. If you can look back over time and say that you've got all the right defenses in place, you've never had a loss, it doesn't mean you'll never have a loss going forward, but it's a pretty good bet that a positive experience will, will repeat itself. Maybe that's a point at which to, to look at a higher deductible or higher self-insured retention if you get a decent premium break to do that. So it's avoiding reducing, it's transferring contractually, and it's retaining risk. And then you go out and buy insurance. And when you go buy insurance, 
whatever the insurance is that you buy shouldn't be just an off-the-shelf product, but it should be designed to your particular need. Cyber has evolved into kind of a modular product. One of the, the probably the most important ingredient that I think that anybody will need is breach response cost. When the red phone rings and you hear that something's happened either on your server or maybe somebody one or two steps removed from your organization, but you're likely to be implicated, you need to do something. You can't put your head in the sand and hope the problem's going to go away. So you need to probably engage privacy counsel to be able to talk about what happened and share the information and map out a strategy, but have it be protected by attorney-client privilege. Depending on where that call comes out, they may say, you need to do some forensics to find out exactly what happened. Where did it originate? How bad was it? Who was affected? Depending on the outcome of the forensics, maybe you're going to need to do consumer notification, notify the potentially affected parties. You've got 47, 48 different state laws dealing with cyber. They're all different. And depending on which jurisdiction or jurisdictions you're talking about, you could have a spider web of regulations coming into play. It's dealing with the whole mess of breach response. That's one of the things you're buying. You're buying protection against liability claims including regulatory actions and the defense of all those kinds of claims. You may want to buy some first-party coverage. That's like property insurance, but it's for your cyber business, your servers, your equipment, your digital assets, all this, the stuff that comprises your network, first-party coverage. And then you can go buy things like business interruption coverage. If you think that your revenue is likely to suffer if you were to have a breach, you can certainly insure against that. You can insure against reputational damage. And then one of the things that most cyber policies are building in nowadays is media liability coverage. Everybody's got a website nowadays. Everybody's publishing content in one way or another. You can insure against media liability for things like libel, slander, defamation, copyright infringement, trademark infringement, plagiarism, those kinds of offenses. So all of those things can be wrapped into a cyber policy. It's really just a question of working with somebody who's a, a good coach and counselor and advocate to discern what your exact needs are and then go price the product. Awesome. Thank you very much, Scott and Dale, for participating in this. Do you have any final thoughts that you want to share with the audience? Sure. I think that I would just say the following. It may very well be the case that a company thinks, hey, listen, cyber risk quantification is too difficult, and so I don't want to do it. It might also be the case that they think, hey, listen, I'm too small, and so it's this isn't the type of thing I need, or my cyber program is too immature. I recommend that they set aside those feelings and attempt to engage with the process and determine whether A, are they really too small? The way to know is to run the analysis, at least roughly, and determine whether, in fact, they are or are not the right size. And then last, look, cyber risk is a business risk like any other risk and ought to be dealt with. There's nothing special about it. It's no different than any other economic consequence that a company might have to address in their planning. The tools are out there, the insurance policies are out there, and it's just a question of engaging and choosing the right solution for the job. And I guess for my part, I would say that the prudent stewardship of any kind of business, whether it's the nonprofit organization that I typically live with or a for-profit manufacturer, public entity, you name it, any organization, if it's being a prudent steward, is going to make its decisions based on solid information. You can't say, I don't need cyber insurance or I don't want cyber insurance because it's going to be too expensive. How do you know? Or I don't have any cyber risk, whatever would lead somebody to conclude that. Chase down the information first. 
and then decide. Our job is to get the facts. We are not in the business of force feeding insurance to people that don't want or need it, but we can help people make act defensible, objective decisions about their risk exposure and quantify it and then chase down the numbers. At the end of the day, my client is the boss. If they say they don't want it, I've done my job, which is to highlight the risk and give them tools to deal with it. Awesome. Thank you very much, gentlemen. I appreciate your time and I'm sure the audience will as well. Thanks for listening to this episode of Demystifying Zero Trust. We hope you found the content both interesting and insightful. Subscribe to this podcast to continue to explore why and how organizations should adopt Zero Trust.